This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. The House Select Committee has been holding hearings for weeks now on the January 6th insurrection, unraveling in detail a high-level plot for the U.S. Capitol to be overrun by a mob in order to pressure key decision makers to overturn the 2020 presidential election results. The most recent testimony last week by Cassidy Hutchinson, the top aide to former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, was particularly damning and appears to have given more impetus to the Justice Department to focus explicitly on Trump's conduct. My guest is Stephen Rosenfeld, editor, chief correspondent, and senior writing fellow for Voting Booth, a project of the Independent Media Institute. He's been following the hearings. Welcome to the program. I'm Stephen. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So first, let's talk about um, your overall impressions of how the House Select Committee has been carrying out its hearings. Last week, they were supposed to be on recess. Actually, it was the week before. Uh, they were supposed to be on recess. And um, they came back early to present Cassidy Hutchinson's uh, testimony. And that seemed to be a turning point in the hearings. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. Her testimony, being a a um, a fairly high level White House staffer, you know what what happens in Washington in Congress and also the White House is you have these young people, you know, in their mid to upper twenties and their thirties, who really are sitting in the rooms with all the people whose names you read in the paper, and um, they do the lion's share of the work. And she was there literally. Her office was within yards of the Oval Office. She was Mark Meadows, the Chief of Staff's top aide. So she was involved in hearing all kinds of conversations about what was going on and people grumbling in the hallways, how do they handle this and that. And she basically conveyed a picture of Trump being completely manic and out of control and increasingly belligerent, literally, you know, throwing plates against the wall and you know, he, the, her whole point was um, that he, he was involved in a series of escalating gambits to do everything to try to, you know, seize a second term. And she tied together a lot of those threads. And as a result, it's put more pressure on other former White House staffers to, to testify. And so what you have here emerging overall, it's, is that even though this is the January 6th committee focusing on this January 6th insurrection, you had a months long escalating um, strategy. It, you know, it was, a, it was an attempted coup, basically tried that was attempted to be executed at every level of state and federal power. So what, it, what do I mean by that? Well, Trump and his allies knew that they lost, and, but, so, but they tried to pressure state legislators, state officials, state secretaries of state, people at the state level to change the results. And when that didn't happen, they tried to pressure the Justice Department to intervene and create a pretext to cast doubt. And when that didn't happen, um, you know, they tried to pressure the vice president, Mike Pence, to oversee it and reject the votes from certain states. And when that didn't happen, and this brings you to the Cassidy Hutchinson testimony on the, on the day of January 6th, you know, Trump was actually hoping to go to Congress and there was a bit of an internal struggle about whether they returned him to the White House or not. And he didn't care. He knew the, the mob was armed. He didn't care. He says, these are my people. You know, they're not going to hurt me. 
So what you've got here is this much bigger thing than, oh, it was a protest that got out of hand. It was a months long plot, unlike anything we really had ever seen before in, in modern American political history for the presidency to use all the powers at their disposal, you know, to plan, promote, and pay for a violent conspiracy and, and criminal to, to, in many respects, and I think we can talk about that, to overturn the results right. of the election. How did Hutchinson's testimony incriminate her former boss, Mark Meadows, chief of staff? From what I could tell, she suggested that he basically chose inaction to try to, I mean, it's not clear whether he was more directly involved, but uh, he, he chose to not do what he should have been doing, chose to let things play out, particularly on the day of January 6th, or is it more than that? Well, I think it was more than that. So what you've got here is, it's really interesting. You, you, you've got Trump, Trump, he was probably the yes man in chief to Trump. What I mean by that is he kept placating him and saying, and going along with, you know, we're going to try to sway these legislators. We're going to try to drum up, you know, fake electoral college slates and have them submitted. And, and he, and, and what her testimony elicited was that he was on the phone with people that were in touch with people that you'll hear about, you know, you know, like the militants or the Roger Stones, you know, the, the people who were promote or Steve Bannon promoting the, you know, the conspiratorial narratives that then all of a sudden were getting circulating in, in the right wing, you know, pro-Trump media. So he was really at the center of sort of this swirling momentum and not saying no. Now at certain times he did tell, um, he told her, you know, things can get rough at the Capitol, you know, no, we're not gonna go up there. But Trump thought he was gonna go there and after the rally go, literally go across the mall and into the Capitol. So um, Meadows was in the center of all that. And, you know, she kept saying he's all, he's, he was on this cell phone, he was on that cell phone. And, um, and it, it, every one of these, you know, levels of um, specific plots, whether it was pressuring state officials, pressuring state legislators, trying to drum up false slates of presidential electors, um, and then knowing that there was, you know, an armed mob that was moving to the Capitol, he was there, he knew, and he, his inaction was that, um, well, we, we can't guess his motive because he hasn't told us, but it's pretty clear the pattern was he wanted to do what Trump wanted to do with the, and then he started getting hesitant, but he couldn't stop it. It was as if, it was as if the wave was too big, and because he didn't hit the brakes soon enough, it was like car crash that was, you know, heading, heading, you know, towards a cement wall or something. One of the reasons uh, that has emerged, maybe the most important reason that has emerged for why the Select House Select Committee held its hearing with Hutchinson when they did, was apparently that she was receiving some form of intimidation from people in Trump's orbit, possibly Trump himself uh, directly. Um, what do you know about that? I mean, that's pretty serious uh, witness intimidation at such a high level in such a public forum is a pretty serious offense, right? Yeah, well, it is. It's another offense. And um, it's really interesting here because there are a series of, um, you know, increased offense, potential criminal offenses, you know, at the federal level and also at the state level. Um, and, and, 
But what we know about the witness intimidation is exactly what you said. Um, you know, there, you know, she was getting messages, and this has been in, this has been, I'm not making this up, this has been, you know, fairly widely reported, you know, in, in the national political press. Um, she was getting, she was getting texts and, 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 and other messages that, hey, we're watching you, you know, you better be loyal. And this is what, you know, again, it's this, this loyalty test where, you know, it, it, it was never Trump's fault that he lost. It was always somebody else's fault. And then it was, and then it was, it wasn't just a do everything strategy that they had in terms of trying to, you know, turn the wheel, direct the wheels of the electoral machinery so that he would be declared a winner. It was also what, you know, they just rejected everything that was factual. So the thing is the push to get her to testify was they were afraid because, you know, she's young and she's in her mid twenties that she might back out, but she had such a pivotal perch or, um, or view of what was really going on. And um, yeah, so, and, and actually at the end of that hearing, Liz, you know, um, Liz Cheney basically said, we're not gonna, we're not gonna let, you know, our witnesses be intimidated by you folks, we're watching you. So um, that was fairly striking. And, um, and apparently more people have come forth and testified since her testimony, which is what is making these hearings go on. And we don't know when the last ones will be, but, um, I should also just mention for the, your audience, most of the people who have testified are Republicans. Yeah. They're not Democrats. And this has been very persuasive with one slice of the Republican party. It's a small slice, but there's been polling on this, which is that people who call themselves independents, which in my world means that to sit in and for being a former Republican, they're moderates, who are they? They're like the, they're like the suburban women, so to speak, who are married to, you know, to conservative or business people who always vote Republican. Um, they're not buying this. They don't like this. And it may only be like 10 or 15% of the Republican Party. But in these states where the statewide elections were margins were 10,000, 15,000, 20,000 votes, this could be enough to, you know, these purple swing states to swing things in 2022 and 2024. And in fact, these were the people who didn't vote for Trump in, in 2020, which other analyses have figured out. Um, so, so anyway, um, you know, this, you know, so this witness intimidation, this notion that, you know, we're trying to, um, you know, bully people, you know, we're trying to take your voice away. This doesn't sit well with, um, you know, with not just you know Democrats or progressives, but with you know these moderates and you know and you know the Republican inclined, but not necessarily always Republican. Stephen, what impact did the Hutchinson testimony have on the Justice Department? We're also seeing reports that the Justice Department has now been jolted into realizing that it needs to focus more directly on Trump's conduct and even the Select Committee itself. Um, you know, which is just kind of bizarre to me that they wouldn't choose to do that in the first place. Um, but uh, how has it pushed the powers that be into focusing directly on the person at the center of this whole attempted coup, which was Trump himself? Well, you know, I'm not based in Washington, so it's hard for me to have the, like, hear the whispers of people who are based in Washington because so much is whispered behind the scenes, as I'm sure you know. But what it appears to be is that 
the select committee has done, you know, they, they, they have done hundreds and hundreds of interviews and they have reviewed hundreds of thousands of pages of documents. And it may very well be that their investigation is more sweeping than the Justice Department. So they're seeing stuff that all of a sudden is like, hey, we didn't know about this. We didn't know about that. We didn't know, for example, what did they know about? Apparently, it was reported. They didn't know that Trump was aware that the mob was armed and was going to head to the Capitol after he gave a speech, and he didn't care. Now, that came. And in fact, he tried to um, undermine the metal detectors or or do away with the metal detectors. Right. So the thing about stuff like that is they may not have you know, spoken to her and, um, and had gleaned that little bit of information. So it creates a tension. But on the other hand, I, I mean, I don't, I don't want to defend the Justice Department because I don't really, I don't want to impugn or defend. They have been involved in terms of the volume of prosecutions from the ground up in terms of all the rioters. I mean, there are hundreds and hundreds of cases and prosecutions, and they seem to be working their way up the ladder, which I think, you know, you, you know, you, some of the people who have been charged and have pled, you know, are beginning, you know, you know, they're now speaking more freely to the January 6th committee. And I think that they, you know, so they came out and they said, we're taking this stuff seriously. What, see, some of the, some of the criminal activities are really simple to prove. For example, if the 80 something Republican party officials and, and activists in the seven battleground states who signed false electoral college certificates, that is no, di- they, they signed the certificates. That's like forging a check. It, you know, it's sort of like a, a 101 level misdemeanor that you know, the most local district attorney has to deal with when they're dealing with um, you know, poverty related crime. It's, it's just, it's so simple to prove. And, and their re, re, the retort by some of their lawyers is like, oh, we're exercising our First Amendment rights. It's ridiculous on its face. You know, so what you have is, so you have those level of prosecutions, you have the, all the violence from the rallies. And then, you know, you, you have, you know, the interference with the actual um, you know, execution or administration of an election or a federal proceeding, which, you know, in Congress, it was the certification of the Electoral College. That too is pretty easy to prove, especially when you have so much of this stuff on video, whether it was Giuliani or people tearing down a barrier or something and trying to barge into Congress. So, um, you know, Giuliani in these state capitals saying crazy stuff, just completely unsupported, you know, and um, so the thing is, I, there are going to be prosecutions in Georgia. In I've heard this, you know, and Trump very well may be charged there by the before the end of the year. But I think in in Washington, the Justice Department it's slightly different, um, and they're you know they're they're working their way up now. Of course, a lot of people are impatient and wish something would happen and think something needs to happen. But that's my sense of it. And of course, I'm not on the inside, so I really don't know. Stephen, you and I are talking right before the hearings on Tuesday, July 12th take place. And ahead of them, we're hearing that Steve Bannon may be um, uh, also uh, cooperating with this House Select Committee, and then there's talk about Trump waiving executive privilege, and then uh, experts saying he never had it to begin with. What do you expect 
with this next stage of hearings to uh, happen, what is the select committee you expect going to be doing? Well, on this, the most recent hearing, so we, there's an arc here. So let's think about this and, and then we can sort of see what, what's in it and what pieces might follow. Early on, they went to prove that Trump and his allies knew that he'd lost. So you heard all about that, whether it was campaign people and White House staffers. And then it became a series of, well, they were illegally pressuring the Vice President Pence. Then they were illegally pressuring state legislatures and election workers to overturn the elections and secretaries of state. Then it moved to the Justice Department, you know, and, you know, launching investigation, cast out. And, um, and then, you know, and then it became, he knowingly, you know, sent an armed mob to the Capitol and, and his, and White House staffers like Meadows didn't, didn't stop. Now, what's going to come out more in, in this most recent hearing is likely to be the links with the militants, you know, faction or the people who were in the protest that day. But there's, but, you know, that, that's just one slice, you know, of a larger, you know, sort of disinformation or, you know, or propagandist, you know, at, you know, wing where you had all these people like who were, um, knowingly publicizing, you know, falsities about the election being stolen, making all these crazy claims like dead people are voting by the hundreds of thousands and things that are just easily disproven, though they don't want to hear any proof. Um, so what's happening is they're trying to sort of show that this just wasn't a one day, one off, you know, aberration, but it was an overall, it was a planned attempted coup. And it was promoted and paid for by Trump's allies. And it had a it had a militant wing, it had a disinformation wing. You know, Bannon was, you know, constantly putting these people on his radio show, claiming complete crazy stuff. You know, people, elections are complicated operations. You have a lot of subsystems and data sets, such as like the voter registration data is not the same as you know the the, the data that actually looks at ballots or who. And, and, and how ballots are returned and verified. And so people were looking at all this stuff and they were everywhere they didn't see something they understood, they thought something else was going on and they assumed it was a conspiracy. And you've got all this stuff that was given all this credence in this right-wing media coverage. And so they're trying to tie this together and show that um, you, know, you, had, it, you, know, you had this ecosystem where you know Trump was actively involved and in signaling to people at all different levels, and um, and that's where where it's going. Now we haven't heard some very interesting things yet. Like personally, I'm really interested in hearing about how Trump tried to pressure the military to seize election equipment, which we know he did, but we haven't heard that in the hearings yet. And you know, so we'll see where this is going. But um, but that's the overall arc. If you think about it, the right. White House and his campaign using every lever of political pressure to, to get people to basically ignore the facts and, you know, and ignore the vote and, and, and just say, declare him the winner. You know, that's, that's the big picture. And it, by the way, it hasn't gone away. And th th this is another thing to probably just you know, have your audience really understand. These activities in 2020 were really kind of amateurish. I mean, these guys, they just couldn't shoot straight. You know, they, 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 their evidence was non-existent. But today, the, that wing of the party is trying to be much more sophisticated with how they are trying to 
structurally lay the groundwork for these same kinds of claims to go further in 2022 and especially 2024. So that's you know where we are. Stephen, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Where can people learn more about the work that you do in Radio Writings? Well, um, my pieces are published on a, on a half dozen different progressive websites. I have my own website where I put them all. It's called votingbooth.media. But my stuff is in the National Memo, the LA Progressive. It's on Raw Story. You know, you see it here and there. Um, you, you see it on other websites. But, um, you know, I'm trying to cover the guardrails right. so that voting still, you know, matters. And, you know, that's my mission. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for the opportunity. It's always a pleasure. My guest has been Stephen Rosenfeld, editor and chief correspondent and senior writing fellow for Voting Booth, a project of the Independent Media Institute. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. You can access this and other interviews on our website, risingupwithsonali.com, by becoming a subscriber. Find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at RU with Sonali.